Hello and welcome. I'm Dan Mullins. This is a weekly podcast about the Camino de Santiago or the Way of St. James. I am a two-time pilgrim who is hoping the Camino is back on the agenda in 2019, 2020, 2021 and beyond. El Camino is famous for its mystical nature. Those who walk are considered pilgrims, and your ultimate goal is to reach the remains of Christ's Apostle St. James in the Spanish city of Santiago de Compostela. You arrive in Praza do Obradoro and stand among the hundreds of other pilgrims who, like you, are exhausted, relieved, a little sad, and proud of what you've been able to achieve. There are numerous paths constituting a Camino, and the most popular is the Camino Francaise from Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port to Santiago, a journey of 800 kilometres, 500 miles, around 30 to 35 days. My quote to begin the podcast this week is a saying attributed to Buddha. No one saves us but ourselves, no one can, and no one may. We ourselves must walk the path. My guest this week is an American pilgrim, chaplain, and author, Patrick Rawson. He's on the line from the United States. Welcome, Patrick. Welcome, Dan. Hi. Uh, First, I want to get to your Camino in a moment, but firstly, you describe yourself as half Buddhist, half Catholic. Now, that's an interesting blend. So what do you make of my quote this week, Buddha? No one saves us but ourselves. No one can and no one may. We ourselves must walk the path. Well, I think that, you know, just the image of path is common to both the Catholic tradition and the Buddhist tradition. And, uh, you know, the Buddhists talk about the Eightfold Path, and um, the Catholic and Christian religion has always had a strong emphasis on the value of pilgrimage. So I think that, I think you do have to—nobody can save you. I think you have to get on the path, and, the, the, you know, that's what you have to do. It's not a— it's not, it's not in your head, it's in your heart, like you, you said before, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's in your heart. The reason you and I are talking is because you sent me a book you've compiled called Conjectures of a Wayward Pilgrim, My Musings While Walking the Camino de Santiago. I loved it, and I want to share a few of your musings with my listeners. But firstly, tell us about your Camino or Caminos. Uh, I've only walked it once, so I retired uh, last Last year and about you know, a month after I retired, I went on the Camino. I started in France at uh, Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port, and uh, I was with another uh, fellow pilgrim, friend of mine for 41 years, and we walked it uh, from excuse me, September, September 13th to about October 19th. And you say the book is not a travelogue but rather a sharing of insights related to seeing the Camino as a metaphor for life. How? Well, you know, I've read many books about the Camino. I have a whole section of my bookshelf all about Camino, with Camino books on them, and some of them are travelogues and some of them are mem- memoirs. Uh, some of them are how to pack. And I felt like I had an idea for a book that was more like conversations and uh, uh, just interactions I had with other fellow pilgrims. And so it's trying to capture those more meaningful conversations that happened on the way, you know? Yeah. And you've, you've written your perspective on spirituality, theology, and our shared humanity. T- 
Tell us about shared humanity. Well, if you've ever slept in an albergue with <laughs> 60 people, you know a lot about shared humanity. Um, but, you know, I think that my, my approach to spirituality is, you know, it's something that's deeply human. It's not, um, uh, nobody has a, uh, a, I don't know, uh, a monopoly on it. I think there are many, many uh, valuable paths and um, all those paths are deeply human, you know, and my path may be very different than the next person's, and I should not judge what their path is doing, you know. Yeah, you, you say in describing the book that you discuss your ongoing call to be a pilgrim. <laughs> and if someone is listening now, how do they know they're getting that call? Wow. Um, well... You know, I, I mean, I think there, there's the initial mystique of the Camino. And, you know, I heard about the Camino and it, it wouldn't get out of my mind. And I felt, I felt you know, really almost chosen to go on the Camino instead of me choosing it. Um, since then, coming back, it's been more like, okay, how do you bring this home? And um, I've tried to, you know, incorporate the Camino at, you know, ethos into my life right now um and i would hope that anybody who has this feeling that they want to self-identify as a pilgrim it's not just a a five-week walk it's something that you say this is this is who i am not what i did yeah and so coming home you you bring that camino experience with you and the, the the life of a pilgrim is what you're saying right Right. And, you know, over the past four years, we've actually had our own Oregon Camino. Uh, it's, a, it's just a, a five-day, 65-mile walk uh, in Oregon, mostly along the coast. So we've been doing our own kind of pilgrimage every summer. It's just a five-day thing. So I've done that. And, you know, the most recent thing is, um, I'm, I don't know if, if you guys get the news that, that we get, but the, the, the American-Mexican border is, is uh, you know, a huge political topic right now. Mm. I'm not sure if you of hear course, about that. Of course, yes, yes. Well aware of that, yeah. So I feel like, like my second phase of my Camino is I'm actually going to go down to the border and work there for a month um, starting in March Will you be caring for the the migrants? Yeah, yeah. So uh, there's a there's a uh, Jesuit run organization in Nogales, Arizona, and it's also Nogales, Mexico. There's it's one border town on both sides of the border, and they they just care for the the migrants as they are as they arrive. Just on a on a side on a side note, where where will you stay? What what, what kind of Life will you be leading down there? You will be working all day with them. Um, you know, I, I'm not really quite sure yet. I haven't, you know, I haven't gone yet, and I basically told them I'm I'm willing to, you know, to cook soup, or I'm willing to help people fill out their asylum applications. I've I've had experience doing some asylum application um, in the past, and I speak Spanish, and I, I teach English as a second language. I've done that in the past, so I. I just want to make myself available. There is no housing provided to volunteers, so I'm going to have to find a room to rent, you know, somewhere. How extraordinary. What a wonderful thing to do. Yeah, I'll let you know how it goes. Yeah, that's a very (laughs) pilgrim-like thing to do too. 
I feel that. I feel like I'm connecting with, you know, other kind of pilgrims that are, you know, forced to walk. Yeah, that's right. I I have to say when I see the the migrant caravan on television, I something something just touches me in my heart about that. Yeah, me too. And you know I am an immigrant, so I think I have that heart of an immigrant, you know. Yeah. Yeah, let let's go back to the to the book. Um you say you've collected conjectures on the value of the pilgrim life. Why conjectures? Yeah, it's an interesting word. I think it's uh, it's kind of a humble word because yeah. it's uh it's tentative. It's sort of saying, okay, this is my best guess right now, but I'm open to reevaluating it down the down the road as I down the literally down the road. Um it, the the word for me came from a, a book by Thomas Merton, who's a Trappist monk, and in the '60s he wrote a book called "Conjectures of a uh, a Guilty Bystander." It was a pretty popular book, uh, so I kind of that's what I, I'm kind of bouncing off that name, "Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander." So I'm "Conjectures of a Wayward Pilgrim," and even the style of that book that uh, Thomas Merton wrote was kind of like these little vignettes or these little um, passages that that uh, he reflected on, but they weren't necessarily segued into each other, you know? Yeah, yeah. It reads beautifully because they're little snippets, they're little vignettes, uh, they're little things, and and you can read them once and you think, I'm going to read that again and have a bit of a think about it. I like the Uh, way it flows. You Thank walked, you, Dan. Yeah, it's great. You walked with your good friend of 41 years, you mentioned just before, fellow pilgrim, Gary. Would you recommend walking with an old friend? I thought it was, for us it worked. You know, I, I'm, I can be very solitary. I, I don't, I'm, not, um, I'm not needing to have, you know, uh, companionship, you know, 24-7. But um, we had been, we've been very close in graduate school. We both studied theology. Uh, he was a lay student, so he was never in the seminary, but uh, went on to work with the Lasallian Christian Brothers for 40 years. Um, so we both have had similar kinds of experiences in our lives. We both have raised families, and our children are adults now. Um, so, and he was kind of more of a planner than I am. So, he, you know, he would kind of arrive at an albergue and immediately kind of um, talk to the hospitalero about, you know, making a plan for the next night. And and I, I would be just as happy as to walk into a, a village and find something. So he was more of a planner. I was more of a, um, you know, <laughs> what day is today again? I couldn't remember <laughs> what, what village am I in. <laughs> I'm a bit we, lucky. We, yeah, yeah. We we played off each other pretty well. You know. In in the book, you say our entire life is a sacred journey that will take us to a sacred place that we call death or and or resurrection. How has the Camino prepared you for what's ahead? Well, well, um, you know, the death resurrection, I kind of hesitated about using that word. I think maybe you have noticed in, in the writing of the book that it's, um, it's, the vocabulary is pretty open. It doesn't, it doesn't lock people into one spiritual tradition. But um, I think death resurrection for me is a, uh, it's a metaphor. It's a, um, it's an analogy. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a pattern that we're all asked to live. You know, you don't just, you know, admire somebody else's death and resurrection, whether it's Jesus's or somebody else's. You, you live it. Every day you, you experience the death and you experience the resurrection. And I think that's, 
on the longer run, that's that's also our 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 pilgrimage in our lives. It's going to be a death and a resurrection, you know. Yeah, and and I loved where you said, given the sheer number of participants on the Camino, well over three hundred thousand each year, there is an undeniable sense that pilgrimage as a spiritual path and discipline is answering the yearning of many who may not even darken the door of their local church, synagogue, or temple. So you don't need to be spiritual or religious to be a pilgrim or to be on a pilgrimage, do you? No, I would say um, it's a very mixed bag of who's on on the pilgrimage. Uh, I, I don't think a lot of them are churchgoers on a regular basis. Uh, but you could see that there was something about the Camino that, you know, tapped a nerve or something about who their deepest self was. And uh, there was enough structure with the Camino. And uh, if you wanted to go to a blessing at night, if you wanted to have conversations, I, there was something about the Camino that was open and welcoming to people who were not self-identifying as Christian or anything like that. Yeah. Let's talk through some of your observations. You say pilgrimage as a metaphor for healthy spirituality encompasses a set of guiding insights that give us direction and challenge as we explore the territory of the sacred mystery. As they say in university, discuss. (laughs) Okay. Um, Well, um, Right after that passage, I believe I talk about my three pillars. Is yeah, that correct? That's exactly right. Yeah. Is it okay yeah. if I go into those? Yes, that's it. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Okay, so you know, I think I think of myself as uh, Catholic, um, but um, searching, and I often ask myself, what keeps me in this tradition? And um, there's three kind of pillars that I call them that have kept me going on this path. And it's just a path. It's not the only path. It's it's a path. But it's better to be on a path than going through the middle of the jungle and not having a path. Um, So for me, I guess the three things would be, number one, is that all God language, all spiritual language is necessarily metaphorical. You know, be, the God is de- is is basically ineffable. That's the word I use, ineffable. And it was actually used in the in the sixth century, in in the Fourth Lateran Council. They basically defined God as ineffable, which basically means that the human mind cannot comprehend totally this mystery that we call God. So the first kind of thing is the best way to talk about this spiritual life is through metaphor, not through rules. So when I think about my, my spiritual journey and being a pilgrim, it's, it's going to be language that is, you know, poetry, song, um, analogies, all those, that kind of language. I mean, it's not going to be a rule-based language. I did have a degree in philosophy. So um, number three says, well, let's think about God as a verb. You know, we, we always think of God as a noun. And let's, let's think about this incredible mystery that we're trying to touch or trying to experience, but it, maybe, it's a, maybe it's better understood as a verb. And if we, just making that linguistic switch to verb, I think, uh, has allowed me to, to play with the language a little bit more. You know, God is, is love, which is a verb, yeah. not a noun. You know? yeah. yeah, that's really interesting. 
And I think being a pilgrim, it's all about simplicity of being. When you think about God as a verb, it makes sense easier. Does that make sense? <laughs> it means that it we can make sense me. of it. I, yeah. You know, this is, is that too abstract for your listeners or something? But it's a, it's just an it's, an, it's another metaphor. You don't you know? It's not. I'm not trying to be dogmatic about it. I'm just saying that think about it this way. You know, and maybe, I, I, like I said, you know, there are people who in our lives they may come up to me and say, "Well, I don't think God exists." Well, my, now my answer is, "Well, that's interesting. Let's talk about it." You know, um, because in in some ways, existence is something that we apply to, you know, the book is on the table. When we talk about existence for our human minds, it's a, it's a place and a time. This thing exists in this spot at this time. We can't talk about God that way. No, so in, in some ways, using the word existing in God is kind of strange. So if somebody kind of challenges that, you know, be open to let them then explore it. It's not going to you know, it won't hurt. <laughs> let, them, let them have their exploration. Yeah, how fascinating. And your life is, yeah. is a pilgrimage of sorts as well, Patrick. Your great-grandparents emigrated from Ireland to the east coast of America. I think within a generation they moved back to Ireland where a new right. generation sought to reestablish roots. And you, you said then your parents emigrated to California in the late 50s. You mentioned earlier your wife, first son, and you then went back to Ireland in the 80s. So what brought you back to the United States? Um, you know, it was just kind of an exploration. My wife and I and our child, uh, our, our youngest, Danny, he was only one year old. Um, you know, we, we were living in California and... You know, everybody was out for, you know, money and wealth. And it just seemed like not a healthy place to raise a family. So we were kind of exploring, looking for kind of getting back to a simpler culture. And uh, we went back there and it worked out. You know, we we had a a really good reconnection with family back there and cousins and and everything. But, um, you know, it was it was a kind of a, a. a paradox because I also left when I, when I left America, I left 10, 10 brothers and sisters here and my mother and father. So, um, you know, I, I was missing them and my wife was missing her, her family. So we knew we had to come back. This was, you know, this is where, where our new roots were. So we came back, but we made the decision when you do come back, we're not going to move back to California. We were going to move to Oregon and try to find a lifestyle that was more, uh, welcoming of the outdoors and and nature yeah i i love the idea of pilgrimage as a metaphor for life and you say our, our pilgrim energy has opened doors of friendship and solidarity that could never have been encountered at home even learning a new language has been a kind of linguistic pilgrimage in a foreign land so talk us through that journey yeah. Um, so lang- language is a tough one. You know, it's it's you think walking over the pyramids is, is hard. <laughs> Learning a language is, is hard. You know, it's it's all uphill for a long time. Um, and you feel you feel, um, you know, inadequate. You feel like you're 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 not making sense. So I, I, I experienced learning a new language as, as very, very difficult, and uh, I did learn Spanish, and I ended up working in, in, um, in Mexico and in East Los Angeles, which is all Spanish-speaking. 
Um, I've worked for many years teaching migrants uh, English as a second language. And like I said, now I'm feeling called to the border because there's these... It's it's just part of the pilgrimage to uh, connect with these people that are that are true pilgrims, you know. Yeah, and you have something to give, something that you want to give and share. I think that's really important. You write you write something in, in the book that I haven't heard before, and it's the original name for the early church was simply the Way, the Camino, right? Yeah, and a humble yeah. na- it's a humble name for a spiritual path of the followers of the teachings of Jesus. I've never heard that before. Yeah, I think if you go to the the Acts of the Apostles, it's referred to the way, as the way. Those who followed the way. They, they were referred to as the followers of the way. You know, you say in the book, I went on the Camino thinking I would use the time to envision what this new retirement stage of my life would look like. I hoped to have a clearer idea of future projects and plans. Did you find those answers? No, <laughs> at least not. <laughs> you know, that was my idea was to go there and kind of come up with this 10-year plan. I probably have good, a good 10 years of health and productivity um, left and are more, you know, hopefully. But um, I kind of thought I would come up with a, a, a well-laid-out plan after walking for 35 days. But um, it was not coming. It was no you know, revelation along those lines. And I was walking up on that early, early morning in the dark, walking up to the uh, Crucifero. Yeah. And um, had my headlamp on and walking up. And it just kind of struck me, really, uh, out of out of somewhere, that um, my my the, the message of the Camino for me was not what am I going to do next. It is who am I going to be? What kind of a person am I being called to be in this new phase of my life? Whether it's being a grandparent, which I am now, and um, so. It had a lot more to do with who who could I be for for this stage in my life, and and a word came to me, um, and the word is was sanctuary. That somehow I need to be a sanctuary. It's yeah, I I was going to walk to the sanctuary in Santiago, but um, how do I actually become a sanctuary for all those in my lives, for my for my spouse, and for my adult children, and for my grandchild and and for you know students and migrants and um co-workers um how, how how do i create a space where people who when they encounter me feel like they're entering a sacred um respectful place does that make sense yeah very yeah. much so very much so and it leads me perfectly to the next question and and the highlighted piece from your writing you you write about the greeting buen camino good way and perhaps that's you saying that you have a journey ahead of you. So tell us about your thoughts on the ancient pilgrim's greeting, as it, as it were. Yeah, I, I was really um, surprised, and I'm not surprised, but it was, it was a real joy to be greeted regularly on the Camino, with the, whether it was you know, in, in English or Spanish. Or, I mean, it was always in Spanish, but what the people who greeted me, whether they were Eastern Europeans or uh, South, uh, South Koreans, were, to hear them say, Buen Camino, and, and even bicycles cycling by you would, would yell out, Buen Camino! Yeah. And it was beautiful, and I, I really started to think about 
it's not just, you know, good road, which is the literal translation of buen camino, good road. It really is like, may your road be full of goodness, you know, in your life. And that's, I started, when I said buen camino, that was the wish I was saying to people. And I was accepting that also from others is may your road be full of goodness, you know, which I think adds a little twist to it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I spoke last week with Father Richard Thompson, a Catholic priest, who talked about love. And you say, and you touched on it a little earlier, in the months prior to walking the Camino, you wrote down short phrases and words that seemed to bubble up in your consciousness as halting attempts to describe your core values and beliefs, knowing that human words on a page are inadequate to explain, let alone describe, and the ineffable mystery of divine love. You're a theologian. You would have done a lot of thinking about this. What is love to you? How do you put it into words? Wow, Dan, you're you're asking tough ones now. Uh, well, I mean, I think it's 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 being in a a place where you are thinking of the other, that your own selfish um, needs are put aside and um you really wish the best for who for everyone and there's nobody that does not it doesn't it doesn't exclude anybody there's no when you when you when you love it there's no exclusion there and one of the things i i think about love is that you really don't know the consequences you you have to trust that it, by when you love you put it out there and it takes on a life of its own and you may never know what influence you've had on a certain person, but you just have to act like this This love is going to take on a life of its own and it's going to blossom and, har- and it'll be harvested somewhere by someone. So, yeah. you know, the, the act of loving is an act of faith. <laughs> yeah, perfect. Now, because the second thing I've got highlighted here and linked together is that you write, Love is the first pillar of your faith. The second is the primacy of conscience. So take us through that belief, firstly, as a chaplain and as a Buddhist Catholic, (laughs) secondly, as a pilgrim, the primacy of conscience. Yeah, um, for for me, um, having the primacy of conscience, that to me is a very deeply Catholic belief and, and the teaching. And I, I, I know that I will be answerable to my conscience and not, not to any other rule setting. So if, if somebody says, well, you got to do this, well, maybe, maybe not. What, what does my conscience say? And conscience is not something you figure out in a dark closet somewhere. Conscience is something that is, is, is developed and grows through dialogue, through openness to challenge. So it's not just, you know, what, what, just getting your own way. It, con- conscience is actually following maybe, maybe a difficult path, but it, you, in your heart of hearts, you know this is the right thing. you want me to give you an example? Sure. So, so yesterday, today is, today is our, our holiday for Martin Luther King. Yeah, of course. Yeah, so um, yesterday we went, my brother invited me to go up to San Francisco and go to the Episcopal Church that were celebrating a, um, a service in honor of Martin Luther King. Well, you know, I went and it was really beautiful. It was a woman preacher. 
and she gave an incredible homily, and there was a communion service. Well, of course, I felt like, in my conscience, I'm going to communion. Now, I probably broke all kinds of rules. I don't care. It was I was following my conscience. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Okay, so that would be an example, maybe. That's know? a great example. You know, mm-hmm. when you talk about the primacy of conscience and you talk about following your heart, you've worked as a hospice social worker for the last 20 years. Who chooses to work around the dying? Yeah, yeah. Many, many people ask me that, you know, when they ask me, what do I, you know, what do, I do, whatever. And uh, their, their immediate response when they hear I'm a, I work for hospice uh, is, oh, it must be really hard. And, you know, in, it, truly, I, I always answer that, no, it's an honor. It's an incredible honor to, to walk a path. It's a Camino to walk this path with a patient and with their family. Um, it usually is a time when families come out, the best of them, come, of the, not always, but many times it's the best that comes out. People put aside their differences and their grievances with each other, and they just focus on the dying patient. So to me, it's always been an incredible honor to be part of that. How do you take people through what you call the goneness, the goneness of yeah, death? Yeah. Of death? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, first, you have to admit it that it, you know, it's not. You, you, can, you can't. You can't just give these sugary answers to people who have just lost a life partner of fifty years, or a mother, or a child. You have to really admit the, the 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 tragedy of loss it's real and it's the uh the grieving will take a long time and the bereavement and the coming coming through that will will everybody will have their own way and it'll take a long time but ultimately you know it, it, just for me personally experiencing death you know right on a regular basis over the last 20 years um it, it forced me to ask myself, what is death? What is death? You know, and is there something after death kind of thing? Um, and, you know, I had to struggle with that. And what I came up with is that our, our images of afterlife, which I say in the book is a very weird term. Think about it. Afterlife. Okay. What's after life? It's, it's hopefully it's still life, you know? Um, so for, for me, um, what, what dies for sure, for me, is the false self. So any kind of pretension or selfishness or ego, all those things are going to die, and they should die. So what's what goes on after death is, for me, is some kind of divine spark that I believe is in all of us. And it's enough to, to affirm that. I don't know, I don't know what that's going to look like, but I do affirm that some kind of divine spark in me will be rejoined with the divine spark of love that's in the, you know, the creator of the universe. I can't possibly imagine that somebody with the spirit and the soul of people I meet and I know is just going to extinguish immediately at some stage. I I just, I can't fathom that. So I've always had a kind of belief like that you just put very well, I might add, into words. Um, Yeah. And yeah, but, but at the same time, it, it's it's shrouded, right? It's it's um, we we don't know what God has prepared. 
you know, I, I, I get I get very um, suspicious of people who are too clear about what's next. Um, it's 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 kind of shrouded in mystery. What's next? Yeah, I kind of like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. You you say your dad, who died in 1999, was a kind, loving man who never judged you, despite raising 11 children in the heady days of the 1960s. You say he rarely gave you advice, but the one piece of wisdom he passed on early in your marriage was it's essential to start each day fresh. Don't carry any disagreements or resentments into the next day. And I, I think that's a great advice for the Camino. And you say here, uh, one has to get up every day fresh and start walking every single day. But it's not just about the Camino. Good advice for all of us, Patrick. Yes. Yeah, definitely on the Camino. You have to just sort of forget about the blisters and the pains of yesterday and start fresh. But I hope I do that in my own life, you know, that um, I don't bring uh, resentments or anything like that into the next day. And I hope I, that before I go to sleep, I, I'm at peace with my loved ones and and settle anything that was amiss during the day or whatever. Um, it's, I think it's a great way to walk a Camino and a great way to walk a life. Let's go back to the Camino. Did you encounter or were you yourself a, a Camino angel? Huh. Uh, no, I, I definitely get back, uh, encountered... Camino Angels, probably the one that probably made me successful in actually completing the Camino was a nurse from uh, Arizona, and she was walking with us. It was There were three women that were walking uh, from Arizona. Uh, I, it was funny because um, their, uh, their names were uh, Barbara, um, uh, Ellen, and Laura. Laura. And I used to call them the Bell Sisters, B for Barbara, E uh. for Ellen, Laura. And we met them in France, so I was calling them the Bell Sisters. But um, Laura was a, um, is a nurse, and she, uh, my, my, the balls of my feet were just absolutely blistered out uh, after going over the Pyrenees and coming down. Mostly the coming down caused it. And uh, she was able to com- open it completely up, clean it out, get some antibiotic cream in there, and rebandage it all up. And by a week after that, I was completely healed. And so I, I don't think I would have made it without her help. Tell us about code names. <laughs> okay, so code names is this great game that it's, it was actually in, uh, invented in uh, the Czech Republic. And uh, you can buy it in word form or picture form. And it's a series of pictures that you put out on a grid on the table. And I brought it along um, on the Camino thinking, oh, it might be a nice evening activity. And um, you're in, there's two teams and, um, and uh, there's a code master for each team that are looking, they're looking at the, uh, the map of the pictures on the table. It's hard to quite picture, but the main thing you have to know is that the game involves the code master giving um, words to his team and they have to use that word to guess several pictures on the table. And, it was a besides being a fun evening activity. It was an incredible opportunity to um, allow yourself to get into the minds of another person. Now, how do they make connections in their lives? That's all about making connections in this game and, and, and in life too. And uh, and we even had it one time where there was two 
uh, players in doing it in Japanese, and we were doing it in English at the same time. So it was it was a fun game. If you ever have a chance to pick it up, it's called Code Names, and you can get it either in picture form or just words on a card. I love it. You you went on this Camino on a bit of a digital detox, didn't you? I did. Yeah, um, I didn't bring a phone. Um, I did have a small iPad just so that I could, when I was close to a Wi-Fi, I could uh, just send an email home saying I was safe and everything was fine. But um, it really was, you know, I, you know, I had just finished, just retired, and you know, I was using an iPhone at work. Um, uh, so you know, it was it was a big change for me to get get rid of the iPhone and and not not have to be constantly feel like I'm just have to stay connected. And the point I was trying to make in the book was that people who are overly anxious about connecting on the, on their electronic devices lose opportunities to be connected with the person right across the table from them, you know? And uh, I saw both. I saw people who were overly connected on the internet or on the, on their iPhones. And I saw a lot of people who were really had put them aside. They may do it for half an hour in the evening just to connect with home or something, but they weren't definitely were not dependent on it. And to me, it was a good challenge to me to think about what, what was really important in my life in terms of, of, you know, social media. You wrote naps are good for you. <laughs> yes. I took a nap every time I got, you know, to my albergue, um, you just take a shower and, and take a quick nap and it just refreshed me and kind of got you going for that evening uh, of some camaraderie. The, the camaraderie is just as much as important as the solid as a solitude. Um, and I think in life we, we, we definitely undervalue naps. You know, I think I feel like I have two days when I take a nap, I have, I have a day and then I take a nap and then I have another day. Um, so, and I think I have a better attitude about my life after, after a short nap. I don't nap for long. It could be half an hour and I'm ready to start again. And maybe we, in our busy cultures, we don't make room for it. I'm a world champion napper. <laughs> Good for you. I am. I am an Olympic class kipper. I can, ha- I truly, I can have, I can have a kip and people say, how on earth is he asleep? But I'm very good at it. But I've been working shift work for 20 years, so I have, yeah. to, be, I have to be good at it. Uh, right. Another one of your observations, bow to your shadow. Yeah, yeah. I said that a few times on the, on the Camino, and the people who, who were with me, they literally knew exactly what I was talking about. You know, it is a kind of strange phrase, bow to your shadow. And um, what it basically means is you can get so rigid about your belief system or your, you know, your decisions about something that you can, um, you can frustrate other people and you can also lose touch of your humanity. So you can be almost overly pious and, and you forget the, the humanness. Uh, we're all broken, you know. Bow to your shadow. Yeah, so bow to your shadow, you know, okay, let's say you don't drink. Well, maybe uh, having a glass of wine with some pilgrims is a good, a good thing. Maybe that's kind of a Eucharist. So uh, don't be so rigid about, you know, uh, what your lifestyle is or something. Or, you know, um, we, we, 
both Gary and I on, on the Camino, we, we drank a, a Coca-Cola every day and we, we never drink Coca-Cola and it tasted so good, you know, and it was just like, okay, I'm going to bow to my shadow right now. That's great. <laughs> I love that so much. That's so great. What about, yeah. what about walking into Santiago de Compostela? Tell us about that. Yeah, it was, it was very good. We got up really early uh, on the night before. We only had 12 miles to go and started off in the dark. And, um, you know, you get very excited as you start to walk around the, uh, the periphery of the airport there. And you know you're getting close. And uh, it was foggy. Um, but um, we, we got into town and we didn't quite know where the cathedral was. We kept following the yellow arrows. And then from across the road, we had two fellow pilgrims that had, had gotten a day ahead of us. So they had arrived the day before us, but they saw us and they came running across the street and then they walked us in to the plaza and the bagpipes were playing. And um, it was pretty powerful. It was really powerful. It's not like you forget all the pain. <laughs> yeah. You know, there and all the pain of the last 35 days is gone you you've arrived you made it you know how do you, how do you describe the camino to people who ask about it now that you're home <sighs> sometimes i say it's like a 35 day walking retreat huh. so if you're interested in a 35 day walking retreat go on the camino if you know if that doesn't attract you it's probably not your thing you know um I always emphasize the, the 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 two prongs of solitude and camaraderie that you get a, a huge helping of both of those. So if that's something that attracts you, you may you may be called to the Camino. Um, I, I I don't know. I think it's just I, you, one thing about the Camino for me, Dan, is that I think it kind of self selects who goes on it. So the people who end up showing up um, are, are already interested in significance in their lives. So if you want to, if you want to walk with people who are interested in significance in their lives, go on a Camino. What would, what would you say to somebody listening now who's maybe thinking about going, uh, what would you say to them? Read some books. Um, you know, make plans. I, I think to say, I don't, I don't think you should hesitate. If, if it feels like you really want to do it, you know, sometimes it's all almost good to just go ahead and book, book the flight and then you're sort of committed, <laughs> you know? So, uh, just find a cheap flight to Madrid and, and then you're committed and, and then start making your plans. Don't try to have everything. Don't have every detail figured out. I'll, I'll, you know, we didn't even have a place to stay in Saint Jean Pierre de Port the first night. It just it worked out, you know, you just showed up. So the Camino allows the flexibility of just showing up. And it's good sometimes just to let life happen, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And actually, that was Gary's kind of word or whatever that he was kind of came away with, you know, from the Camino was let life unfold. You know, don't try to control it. Let life unfold. Yeah. Will you go back? I think so. I kind of promised my my wife that I would go back when she's still working. So she probably has four, maybe four more years of, of employment. So, and she has an elderly mom that she really can't be gone for, from from for too long of a time. So probably when those two things resolve, 
that I'll, I would go back and walk it with her. She, she actually came out and walked for uh, about seven days with me. Oh, fantastic. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Gary and her traveled together and came out and we were it was a hard part because it was in the Meseta, you know. I love the Meseta. I, I loved it. Yeah. yeah. You know, I people kind of complain and everything. I th- I thought it was fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I'll yeah. tell you what's fantastic. Talking to you is fantastic. <laughs> I've Patrick, I've thoroughly enjoyed reading your musings sharing your concepts and digging a little deeper, and not only in terms of the Camino and pilgrimage, but our own journeys too. So thank you and congratulations for putting on paper the thoughts you felt you ought to share with others. Your journey as a man, a father, a a husband, and a pilgrim. So thank you. Thank you, and I I, uh, wish you the same. And if you're ever in Oregon, come, uh, come visit. Well, I might just do that. Buen Camino. Buen Camino. My guest this week, the American pilgrim, chaplain, and author, Patrick Rawson. You can find his book, Conjectures of a Wayward Pilgrim, My Musings While Walking the Camino de Santiago, on Amazon. Conjectures of a Wayward Pilgrim, My Musings While Walking the Camino de Santiago. My quote to begin the podcast this week belonged to Buddha. No one saves us but ourselves. No one can and no one may. We ourselves must walk the path. Patrick called himself half Catholic, half Buddhist. No one saves us but ourselves. No one can and no one may. We ourselves must walk the path. Thank you for taking the time to listen to my podcast this week and every week. Camino hugs from a humble pilgrim in Sydney, Australia. Until next week, I'm Dan Mullins. Buen Camino.